Deconstructionist podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. Lord God Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everyone. We are your hosts. I am Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. And today, today, <laughs> today we crack the echo chamber. What, what do we mean by that? Crack the echo chamber. The echo chamber is essentially the place that you create in your confirmation bias <laughs> when you've heard one perspective for so long and you decide... I want to just hear lots of new perspectives, but not those perspectives. So you control the voices that come in. And when you control the voices that come in, it's essentially a version of what you already think, or at least what you're going to allow yourself to think, which is just you controlling the voices that come in, which doesn't really fit with the deconstructionist motif, does it? No, 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 we got to, we got to fix that. So we're going to crack the echo chamber. (laughs) We're going to get a member of the, gospel coalition yeah oh my gosh (laughs) i hope our listeners are laughing at least a little bit at the irony of this right now yeah why not why not get timothy freaking keller you got to get the the guy the man right right (laughs) i i really actually enjoy this one too because um he's i may not follow him down the path to his to the conclusions that he comes to Mm -hmm. but he's so well thought out and and he's such a nice guy that um you know, I think you said it best a long time ago at an older episode where you don't have to agree with everything someone says says to agree with anything they say. Right. And um, I, I just think that um, this interview is really cool because it, it definitely showed a side to him that I was not familiar with. Mm. A lot of the language that he uses uh, when we talked to, uh, talk to him was uh, definitely, you know, kind of along the lines of what we're saying. Oh my gosh! You know, let's let's examine our beliefs, and and uh, it's okay to have doubts and and to have questions, and and not stuff that I would have expected to hear from from the you know evangelical pope. For our listeners who you know maybe you've been 
you know, you're, you're post-evangelical or, you know, maybe even you're post-Christian or whatever, and you've enjoyed a lot of the perspectives we brought onto the show because they're very outside what you're normally used to hearing, you may see this come across your podcast feed and go, deconstructions have Tim Keller on. Oh, I'm not, I'm not listening to that. Don't do that. And I would ask you not to do that because you're literally doing the very thing that this podcast is trying not to do. Right. Which is filter and select only what you want to hear. And I'll tell you what, you will be very, very pleasantly surprised. All right, well, let's roll tape on this. Let's do it. Here we go. Timothy freaking, freaking Keller. Tim Keller, Dr. Keller, um, thank you so much for being a part of this with us and being on the Deconstructionist podcast today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm ready to be deconstructed. <laughs> well, I think you'll be the one probably deconstructing us. Yeah. Oh, and, and, we, and, we are, and we are ready for that. So uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started here. So uh, obviously one of the big things we want to discuss and, and talk about is this, um, this really great new book that you have coming out. And in fact... Um, Upon the airing of this uh, podcast, it'll be coming out that week. Um, I think actually on the day of, but if not, very very shortly after. Um, it's called "Making Sense of God" and um, an invitation to the skeptical. And um, that speaks, I think, to a lot of the people that listen to our show. But also, I would have a, a strong feeling that a lot of people who listen to our show are also familiar with the book that came out ten years ago um, that that you wrote. And this seems kind of like. Uh, an extension um, of that earlier book, and it, it, was that the intention behind it, or no? It's more like a prequel. <laughs> mm, interesting. Okay. Well, I'll tell you why. I think the 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 book I wrote uh, uh, eight years ago, well, eight and a half years ago, "Reason for God," is a fairly. Um, uh, I mean, over the years, every everybody, um. Everybody has a, a, a view of reality, you know, a kind of what's called a comprehensive view. You know, if you say there's no God, that's a comprehensive view. You're saying everything has to have, to have a natural explanation. Um, if you say there is a God, then that's a comprehensive view. So everybody's got these kind of comprehensive views of reality. You really can't function without it. And, uh, uh, you know, people over the years, if you're Muslim or if you're uh, a Christian, if you're an atheist, you know, you have people have written, um, basically made cases for their point of view. They say, here's why I think my point of view is right and true. Uh, so my book, uh, eight and a half years ago was called the reason for God. And it basically made a, a relatively traditional case. Um, you know, what is the evidence that there's a God? Uh, what is the evidence that you can trust the Bible? What is the evidence that Jesus ever lived? Mm. And basically making a kind of, you know, a case, a two or three hundred page case for Christianity. What over the years I came to realize that that to sit down and read a book like that and to take all that, that time to explore it, you had to believe that religion or Christianity was relevant enough to do that. In other words, there's a lot of people who would say, 
I'm not going to read a 300-page book because honestly, re- religion is over, and I don't care if Christianity is true because I don't need it to be true, and I don't see what 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 relevance it is. Wow. And so we came to I came to realize that whenever I was would talk with people, that before I could show that it made uh, you might say rational sense, I had to show them it made emotional and cultural sense. That is, I had to show them that. Um, that it did make a difference to a culture or society. It did make a difference to community. It does make a difference to you personally. Uh, it may or may not be true, but you ought to at least see that if it was true, it would be an enormous resource for for you. And mm. most people are going to say, I don't see it as a resource. So I said, okay, I'll, let, me, I'll, 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 let me tell you why it's a resource. So you're not making a case for Christianity uh, that it's true. You're actually making a case for why it would be good if it was true. And that's what making sense of God is. It's really a way of saying, if Christianity were true, look at the great resources. So it's a prequel. It's for people who are not, you know, frankly, are not willing to give, give you know, the time to – they're just too skeptical, frankly, of Christianity yeah. or, or even the need for there to be uh, a God. Now, mm. the, only, the, only, the only downside is it's another long book, which means to say <laughs> is, I don't believe I, – I, I felt like it was important to put down all the stuff that I've been saying over the years with a lot of people that I've been talking with about this. And I did want to get it in print, and I did want to get it under two covers. But I would actually say it's still a pretty long book. And probably if I was really going to make what's in these two books accessible, I'd probably need to create a shorter book that would be a, you know, a gateway you know, a gateway book you could read and say, discuss with somebody and say, okay, now if you really want to get into this, here, here are the other places to go. Mm. So, but that's what it is. It's a prequel. It's really saying, here's why Christ, it would be good if Christianity were true. Uh, whereas the reason for God is on why it is. Well, as somebody that likes to nerd out, one of the things that I appreciated about it, I, I read it over the weekend. Uh, oh, your, gee. Your, publish, your publisher got it to me and I just absolutely loved it. And the thing I like most about you and I always have loved about you is just how well-researched and how broadly researched you are. That's one of the things people can expect to find in this book. And you always make my reading list grow exponentially anytime I ever read anything now, that you've are, are you Are you saying here in public, are you claiming in public to have read all six, <laughs> 668 endnotes? That's amazing. No, I'm not weekend? claiming that. In fact, when, when, when John came over to record, I was like, look at how many footnotes are in this book. <laughs> Uh, this is okay. inc- it's incredible. So you, you skimmed them. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I did skim the end notes, but you know, to 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 me in my uh, how I accomplish myself, I say I've read a book when I when I read the last chapter of a book. Mm. <laughs> but he did actually read this book from cover to cover. I did that. I can uh, I can attest to you by the uh, the sheer number of underlined sentences in this yeah, book. So yeah. looks more like a journal, I think, at this point. But <laughs> got to. So well, one great. of the things that. I think is really interesting um, about your work is we kind of have this, I think, false perception of people um, like yourselves in in leadership positions, you know, who are the head of, you know, fairly large churches as having kind of everything all figured out and uh, never having any kind of doubts. But you've been open in your in your writing about talking about the fact that uh, back in your college years that you experienced some doubts. And I think that's really remarkable. And I wondered if you could briefly kind of talk about that a little. Oh, well, first of all, before you're a Christian, you doubt it all, and then, which is natural, <laughs> and, then when, and then when you uh, enter in, I think, I, I think you're, you have probably more doubts until, wow. until a, a lot of things are, a lot of things settle, but 
in the long run, in the long run, you, um, I, I say, put it this way, you stop doubting a lot of the basic things, but your doubts start moving out further toward parts of what the Bible says or, or some Christian teachings. So, so anyway, I don't think your doubts ever go away, but they should, they should migrate, frankly, and it means that you shouldn't, but it, if they persist over and over again, then I think you have to sit down and say, okay, what's going on here? You're not growing in faith, mm, but that's another, sure. that's another subject, another book, I hope. Sure, <laughs> sure. It'd be a good one, too. I think, uh, I think you could probably write that very, very well. Um, one of the things that I loved, you know, just we're going to kind of start asking you some questions from throughout the book here, because you're right, it is very rich, it's dense, you know, it's, it's a, it is more, in some ways more sophisticated and deep than uh, Reason for God, and I, I really did find it an enjoyable, uh, stimulating, provocative, uh, sometimes even disturbing read. One of the things that I liked initially that I thought this would just be a really good fit, you being on the show with us here, is it's something that you have a, a wonderfully humble reputation for doing. You've been doing ministry in New York you know, since the late 80s. You have a reputation for inviting questioning, inviting conversation, inviting uh, people to air out what they really think, what they really feel. And in the beginning of this book, you talk about how you, these, these skeptic sessions that you have, skeptic, skeptics welcome, these questioning Christianity sessions that you did that a lot of this book is kind of based on, that somebody came up to you at the end and said, you know, that they'd been a Christian in their younger years, and then they moved into becoming an atheist, and then they realized after sitting in with you in one of these sessions that they'd never really, it says, quote, I never really looked carefully at my foundations. I'd been too influenced by my surroundings. I hadn't thought things out for myself. Thanks right. for this opportunity, end quote. That, that's kind of what we're all about here, just giving people a safe place, because a lot of people don't feel like they have the safety of doing that in the church. How did you how did you come to a place where you realized that that is important and you engage that in a way that is both faithful and open because I feel like that is something that you do very well that most people are struggling to figure out how to do how do, how did you how do you do that Uh yeah well you have to make it safe you just don't take people's heads off when they ask questions I mean I, with that man uh and he's very typical I think very typical it is he grew up in religion in a in a church and didn't really question because everybody around him said, well, everyone believes this and all smart people believe this and all good people are like this. And it was just, you know, he was basically um, sociologically conditioned to find Christianity plausible. Then he goes mm. off to college and he falls in with another group of people. They're very smart. Mm. They're very good. Uh, they're people that he would like to like him. And they're also people that he would like to be like, and they're all very skeptical and they, or they may ridicule or they, or they, they have reasons, they have their reasons, but to a great degree, he loses his faith because now before he was pretty much living off, uh, what the first community that he was in, he just felt like I, you know, it's, it feels plausible because all the people I hang, hang out with believe this. Now mm. it feels plausible not to believe because all the people I hang out with don't believe. And, mm. and, and he, he realized at a certain point that I actually never thought things out very well. It's just, I, I went on what felt plausible and if plausibility had to do with the community. Now, what that means though, is you don't, you know, you, you want to please people, you want their approval. Um, and most communities are, do not make it safe to question their, yeah, most churches don't make it safe to question, but actually most skeptical you know, go to an academic setting, go to a university where people are pretty skeptical and secular and all that, and they don't make it safe mm -hmm. either. They don't make it safe. So, 
So to, to create a safe place where everybody's open to say, look, this is where, this is what our church believes, but we're not going to take anybody's head off at all. And we're actually, we assume that we're going to learn from you. If you, if you severely question us, we're going to mm. learn from you, but we want you to be willing to say, if you're questioning our, our evidence is grounds for what we believe. We just want you to, um, to, to, to you know, basically endure the same, be, be every bit as willing to ask, what's the evidence for the way in which I think? What's the evidence? Mm. What are the grounds? And nobody actually has the um, very hard to find any place where you can do that because people kind of ridicule and, and they don't just ridicule. It's not fair to say they all ridicule, but they, it's like you act as if a community usually acts as if, um, so many things that are actually beliefs are givens. That's it. Right. They, right. they act as if things are beliefs. They're not self-evident. Not everybody in the world believes that. Lots of people don't believe it, but they basically treat it as unquestionable. Yep. And when you're around people like that and you want to be part of that community, you just pick it up and you actually never look at your own basis. So that's, that's what mm. that guy's just, I, that guy's just typical, extremely typical. Yeah. And so uh, all I know is, generally speaking, I, I don't say it's only churches that do it. I very often find skeptical communities are really, really uh, every bit as uh, down on people questioning the skepticism as churches are people questioning their faith. But we just try to create spaces where you can do that. And I think we've created created a culture like that. So I think you have, too. Well, and a lot of places. It, no, yeah. not every place. It's a big church. And you could be in a small group, and you could say, "I don't think I believe in God." And even though it's a redeemer small group, they may they may say, "What?" You know, so I I, I can't <laughs> I can't I can't vouch for every part of our, our church, but I say in general we've tried. Well, that was very wise of you to not vouch for all of me. I can't do that. Oh, that's great. We talk a lot about on this podcast about implicit bias, and that you know just. Um, a lot of times that just that systemic, that that affinity bias that we have, we just surround ourselves with people. It becomes an echo chamber. And before you know it, you're not really thinking anymore. You're just being carried along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I've had some people, I've had some criticism from some people who are skeptical, who have read the book, and a number of places say, you know what, now there, you're just assuming something. And I'm like, mm. oh, okay, I see that. So you just have to be, you have to be really open to criticism and be willing uh, to say, okay, okay, I'm breaking my own rules. You're right. I got it. You're right. Oh, that's, I changed that. that. Is, so that's you kind that of do great. that. That is great. One one of the things that I just loved because I just want to give people kind of a, a couple little other tastes from the book is uh, we talk a lot about on this show of the idea of mystery, the idea of transcendence, the idea of you know God being uh, something that is you know you can experience. There's this rise, this you know this surge of people kind of getting back into Christian mystics from the past and all these kinds of things. <clears throat> but you you reference Charles Taylor, the philosopher. And I just loved his idea that you bring into the book and use throughout the book, this idea of, quote, fullness. And it says, right. you know, Charles Taylor argues, quote, that fullness, this idea of fullness is neither strictly a belief nor a mere experience. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that and why that's so important. Well, there's a whole lot of other people who are willing to talk about it, but they always put their own work. I, I try to show some examples of it um, in the book. Um, Vaclav Havel, who was the Czech, you know, the first president of the Czech Republic, or um, the um, Kenneth Clark, who who did the the BBC Civilization series. 
Um, there's a lot of people who, uh, in spite of the fact they didn't believe in God, uh, had ex- they have intuitive experiences, sometimes very, very strong, but sometimes kind of weak, that there's got th- that this world can't just be this world. That that that, that you know it. There's got to be more to it than what meets the eye. Mm. Sometimes it's, it, it, there's a, so many variations on it. That's the reason why he says it's, it's a sense or a perception. It's not just an experience. In other words, it's not just a feeling. Mm. Uh, but it's not, it's not an argument either. <clears throat> he gives a bunch of examples. And actually, the only way for most people to get a handle on it is just to give the example, which I did in the book, just to give examples of it. It can actually mm. happen when you're listening to, a, uh, you know, uh, a Bach or a Mozart Requiem or a Bach Mass, and you, uh, you you actually have a deep experience in which you say, "There's got to be more to life." You know, mm. it, it, just, it can't end. You know, Susan, I think it was, um, uh, you know, people who have a sense that, in spite of the fact that I don't believe, I believe that when my loved one dies, they just are not there; they're just gone. You know, they lost consciousness; they're going to dust. And people who have a very persistent belief know there's more to it than that. Most skeptical skeptics, when they hear about those beliefs of people with those experiences, can write them off. Is that's wish fulfillment? That's all it is until they have one, Man. and then they realize that no, it's a, it's some kind of experience of transcendence that's really difficult to account for. And um, now, not everybody's had them, and therefore, they, see, this is no proof of God, but it is it it. it, it when you read the accounts, you start to say, huh. So in the very beginning of the book, what I'm trying to show is right now, four out of five people in the world think it makes sense that there's a God. And that number is going up, you know, in the future to eight out, eight out of nine. I mean, in other words, that's, that's where we're going. So you have to yeah. ask yourself the question, why do so many people think, especially when there's a lot of people who, who believe who are not under social pressure to do it? And so all I'm trying to do in the very beginning is say, well, here are reasons why a lot of people find secularism just isn't enough. And uh, some people do, like Jürgen, you know, Habermas and Tom Nagel, people who, who say they're still yeah. atheists, but they still say, you know what, secularism by itself can't account for things like consciousness or human rights or things like that. But there's other people like Vaclav Havel and even Barbara Ehrenreich and other people like that who have these experiences of transcendence and they can't account for it. And I'm just, I'm just mm. telling you the facts. I'm just telling you there is a significant number of people that have those experiences. So, and, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and you know, Taylor, Taylor, a couple of places, Taylor says that that thing of some skeptics and atheists have really cried foul over that. They've yeah. just said, Hey, you know, there's no way to refute you. You know, you're, there's no, I can't, <laughs> I can't refute you. You're just saying lots of people have these feelings and other people, say, yeah, yeah, I have those feelings. And um, they say it's it kind of unfair. And Charles Taylor says, I'm just reporting. Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, how, how do you argue with that? And, you know, that's the thing I like. You're not really trying to argue. You're, yeah. No, 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 we're not. And, and I'm trying to explain why religion is not going away. I mean, I, the one thing I am trying to refute in the very beginning is the common belief, and it's, it's partly fueled by headlines, and that is religion is dying out. Younger people are less mm-hmm. religious, and it's going to keep on going in that way. And religion is becoming irrelevant. We don't need religion anymore. You still get a lot. That's a lot. That is wish fulfillment, and that's what I'm trying to mm. show. And then, mm. but not just it's not going away. We need to say why isn't it going away? 
And so at this point, I'm being phenomenological. That is to say, I'm not making a case for religion. I'm describing why it's so compelling for so many people. And Because I, I just don't want you, if you're the reader, to say, I don't need to take this seriously because, frankly, this is just – it's dying out. It's just not. And there's good reasons why it's not. So. Oh, man. Man. So one of the things that I think is really interesting in, in your new book is the fact that you, you speak to kind of both ends of the spectrum – um, and in one of the early chapters, you talk about this idea of changing your premise. And one of the quotes I thought that was really, really quite remarkable in the book was, uh, to move from religion to secularism is not so much a loss of faith as a shift into a new set of beliefs mm-hmm. and into a new community of faith, one that draws the lines between orthodoxy and heresy in different places. Right. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of unpack that a little, because that's a very kind of unique approach to that idea. Well, it is, except, you know, I, you might remember there's a, I didn't, I don't know the guy and I didn't even ask him, but there's a guy who has a website called Patrol and his name is David Sessions. He's a, he came up in a very, very conservative, um, uh, evangelical Christian home. I, well, well, I mean, I don't know if it's home, but anyway, came up in a very, very conservative environment, went to a college, was very conservative, came to New York and now is in Boston doing a PhD and pretty much lost that faith and became a more secular person. Okay. Um, he read Charles Taylor and when he read it, he was very, he admired it a lot and he wrote Mm. a very long blog piece, which was remarkable. And I, I quote it extensively in the book in which he said, when I was losing my faith, I said it was all because, uh, there's just no evidence for Christianity that, uh, you know, I'm rational Christians just, just have faith. And then he says, I now believe what Charles Taylor says, and that is that I've moved to a new set of beliefs. You know, I still have a lot of moral values, but they have a different grounding, but those moral values are not rational. They are leaps mm. of faith. Wow. Uh, you know, my, my belief, in fact, all moral beliefs, anytime you open your mouth and say, you ought not to do that, or you ought to do that, that moral belief is not something you can prove. No way. You, could, you might prove that it's beneficial in X, Y, Z way, but just because it's beneficial doesn't mean it's wrong to do uh, or right to wow. do. And so wow. he, he basically said, I now realize that I saw a new group of people. I want to be part of that group of people, and I want to become a different kind of person. And I actually moved to a new set of moral beliefs. Now, I use him as the case study and then give other examples. But basically, I, um, I actually have had a couple people uh, all, who are not believers, uh, who are skeptics, pushback really strongly on that. They insist in what Charles Taylor calls the subtraction story. Mm -hmm. The subtraction story is I used to believe, but then I became rational and scientific and thoughtful, and I saw there was no evidence for Christianity. So basically, I lost my belief in God, and now I actually don't have a lot of religious beliefs. I'm just a, a, you know, a rational person using my reason. And, and yeah. David Sessions plus I and Charles Taylor all make the case that's just not the way it happened. You've, right. you've, you've dropped one set of beliefs from another set of beliefs, one, set, one community uh, that supports those beliefs. And uh, I've had some people, people really hate that. And I think, I mean, David Sessions, once he admits that, it doesn't make, he, you know, he hasn't suddenly come, you know, running toward God. He's just right. saying, I just think we need to be more honest with ourselves. And he does admit that he used it as a self-defense mechanism originally. Because as oh, he was wow. losing his faith, he really wanted to say, I, I, I was using my reason. No, he says, 
it was a it was a kind of new leap of faith. And of course, it's a new leap of faith, and it's what I wanted to do. And it's not, I wasn't just following the dictates of reason. But I have to say, most of the people I know who are secular and skeptical, and maybe are atheists, they take that subtraction story, and I'm trying to undermine it in the book because I don't think it's fair. (sighs) Yeah, I totally followed you on all that, and I I thought that was (laughs) compelling. I mean, I can see why somebody might think that's unfair, but I I also think it's incredibly compelling, and maybe, maybe they just didn't like that it. It kind of works. Well, all you have you to do, do is you have to say, well, what do you think is – tell me what you think are right and wrong ways to live. Right. Okay, and as soon as the person answers that, I say, okay, are those views self-evident to everybody in the world? No. Can those things be proven empirically You know, in a test tube or in a scientific – can they be proven? Very often people will say, oh, it's proven that if you, you, know, if you don't smoke, you'll live longer. I said, well, that, that just means it's practical. You know, it's also, by the way, it might be even practical to starve the poor. The whole point is, as soon as you get into cost-benefit analysis, that's not, that is making no case for whether something is right or wrong to do. I'm not asking whether it's practical to do or not practical. And by the way, even practical depends on what you think is a good way to live. Because cost-benefit analysis assumes your understanding of a benefit, what will make you happy, and in the end, that's always subjective too. So you basically... If somebody says, oh, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm just going with reason. I'm not, you know, filled with religious beliefs. I'll say, okay, tell me what's right or wrong in a way to live. As soon as they tell me, I say, if it's not self-evident, it's not empirically proven, this is a new set of religious beliefs that can't be empirically mm. proven. And you've got a new community and you've got new orthodoxy and all that. Just, just, I mean, let's just admit it. We have a, and therefore you can't prove your position and I can't prove my position. So what we have to do is we have to compare them by saying which one makes more sense to the life we see in the world, to our human intuitions. Uh, so which one makes – so what it does is it levels the playing field. It's as simple as that. I'm trying mm. not to prove Christianity. I'm just trying to say the, the playing field is absolutely level. You must yeah. not say, I'd be happy to believe in God if you could prove it. You know, That's my point in the first part of the book. Or I'd be happy to believe in Christianity so you could prove it. You have to turn around and say, you cannot prove where you're standing either. The way in which you determine these things is you compare uh, systems of, of thought, and you look at which ones are most consistent with, it, with, with within, you know, which of them are, uh, you know, are, uh, which of them are livable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which are livable. And there's yes. a whole lot of ways in which you make, decide how the systems make sense, but don't just sit there and say, there's a... Uh, uh, you know, I'd be happy to believe as long as you could prove it, because that's a- adopting a kind of high, a high moral ground that you really don't have the right to be in. Right. You're, you're, you're asking somebody to, to do something that you yourself aren't, aren't doing. You're right. That's exactly right. You see why this book is not proving Christianity is true. It's talking no, about it's what I do, actually love how, about it. Yeah. How do you go about deciding whether anything is true? And it's not as easy as maybe you think. When I'm old.
The thing I love about your approach and why I, I recommend anybody and everybody read this book is you don't take, I think a lot of people immediately will assume that you're taking the classical apologetics approach where you're going to, you know, get up at the lectern, you know, almost make everyone feel bad for not believing in Christianity because it's just so evident that it's true. And you don't do that at all. If anything, you just, you just put cracks in what people think is evident outside of Christianity, which is in your case, secularism. That's what you use in the book. And instead of, you know, trying to prove Christianity, you just, it gets to actually my next question. You try to get people to doubt their doubts. That's the and, first part. That's the first part uh, of the book. Yeah. And I think we can all learn from that. No matter where we're at, we can all learn from that. So talk to us a little bit about doubting your doubts. You talk about, there's a case study in the book where you talk about a young man that heard you mention that once. And he says, quote, I'd never realized that there had to be some faith under, under my, my doubt. doubts. Right. Yeah. What do you so, mean by that? Yeah. What he meant was, for uh, here's an example. Um, I just watched, <laughs> I just watched a, a movie that wasn't really good, but I didn't think, uh, Batman versus Superman. <laughs> just, oh, it's not, it was not good at all. It wasn't, it wasn't. <laughs> so, well, it was so you, bad. <laughs> I, it was, but great. Yeah. Of course, fight scenes, but you know, Lex, yeah. Luth Lex Luthor keeps saying, you know, if God is all powerful, he can't be good. If he's good, he can't be all powerful. A lot of people think right, that's right. a slam dunk, except frankly, in the past, you can go way back. You can go. You can go back to the Greeks. You can go back to the Romans. You can go back to Job, the Book of Job in the Old Testament. People have always known that there's a problem here. Right. Uh, why in the world is all this evil and suffering happening? If God loves us, why? But nobody ever thought, up until very recently, that that proved there could be no God. I mean, the Greeks and Romans, Job. Nobody ever said, "Well, there can't be God." Here's the reason why. In the past, there was a a background belief that if there was a God, of course his knowledge would be beyond ours. Right. And of course he might have some reason for allowing evil and suffering that we couldn't imagine. I mean, right. I mean, if he's infinite, and, and so if there is a God, then by definition, he might know some things we don't know. Oh, and whereas, whereas today, what we say is, if I can't think of any good reason why God would allow evil and suffering, there can't be any. Now, that is a logical, that's a non sequitur right there. Because if you say, uh, if, if, if I can't think of anything and there is a God, God couldn't have any knowledge that I don't have. That's just crazy. But that actually is a background belief, which is I have the ability to exhaustively understand the world with my reason. That's a modern belief. Right. It's a background belief. I'll say it again. I, I have the ability with my reason to exhaustively understand the universe. And if I think long enough, and so there's this higher, uh, the background belief is far more confidence in my own critical thinking to be able to plumb the depths of the universe that ancient people didn't have. Now, therefore, you have an assumption. It's a, it's a leap of faith. The ancient people would think it's crazy. You certainly can't prove it. And it's the reason why that objection to evil and suffering feels compelling to you. Mm. If somebody says, that disproves God, you can go underneath and say, there's a leap of faith you're making. And that is that if you can't think of anything, therefore God couldn't. And that, you know, that may or may not be true. In other words, you're saying, if there is a God, God can't be a whole lot smarter than me. Which, of course, right. on the surface of it looks silly. I'm trying to make it look silly. I'm, I'm, I'm right. trying to. But the point is, it's a leap of faith. And the it ancients is. seemed a lot more, frankly, you know, it seems more cogent to say, that maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. But if there is a God, of course he might have reasons that we couldn't plumb the depths of. So what I would try to say there is 
if you're, have you doubted your doubt? Have you looked at why your doubt about God because of evil and suffering? Have you looked at how it's based on a major leap of faith? And let me ask you, what's the grounds for that, that belief that you, that, you know, that there, you, there couldn't be anything that God has in mind, obviously that I don't know, you know, what's the basis for that? Well, there's not much of a basis for it. And that's exactly how you doubt your doubt. So you go through every single other one of your doubts, you always find something down there. And I'm just trying to show you that the doubts you have are not insurmountable. They're just Mm -hmm. not, there's no doubt that's insurmountable. You have to weigh them in the end, but there's no doubts that slam dunk because at the bottom, they're always based on something that's not, you're not doubting at the moment. Mm. I, what I love about that is no matter who's listening to this show, be, be it a, a skeptic, somebody that's de-churched, somebody that's, you know, firmly rooted, you know, maybe they're an elder or a pastor in their church, um, getting to a place where you don't have any doubts, as you said before, kind of means like you're not moving and, you know, questioning and doubting the, the faith leaps that you're taking provides an exhilarating, wonderful opportunity to continue to grow, grow in your community, grow in your research, grow in your exposure to different ideas. And I, I just love what you're saying. I think it's so useful. And we're getting a little short on time here, and I know you've got different appointments to get to. I'd love to end with one last um, question and reference in your book, uh, one of my favorites, actually, which I thought was just uh, just beautifully and, and simply put. Um, you talk about towards the end of the book uh, where it's, you know, you're talking about is it reasonable to believe in God? There's this little mini chapter, kind of you have chapters within chapters, sort of like sections of you know, the book, Mm -hmm. and you talk about why not reconsider your premise, and you say, quote, if the premise that there is no God leads most naturally to conclusions that you know are not true, that moral obligation, beauty, meaning, and the significance of love, things like our consciousness of being, that these must all just be illusions, then why not change your premise? I I love that. I've never heard it put like that before, and so, yeah, there's all these things, justice, hope, consciousness, beauty, love, and if you're a pure secularist in, in the way that you talk about it in the book, you, you've kind of got to do a workaround for all those things that, that are a little bit more flimsy than if you just change your premise. You know, in, in closing here, and hopefully, hopefully everybody will run out and grab this book and uh, put a crack in their echo chamber and learn to doubt their doubts a little bit. And uh, if you could just talk a little bit about that reconsidering your premise. Well, um, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, right now there are some top philosophers in the world who would 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 continue to say that they don't believe in. They actually call themselves atheists because, like Tom Nagel, for example, which I'm still an atheist because he, what he says is I don't believe in the Christian God. I'm not a theist in the sense I don't believe in the in the traditional God. But basically, a guy like Tom Nagel in his book Mind and Cosmos, he he did reconsider his premise because he said. Uh, consciousness, we really can't explain ideas through the brain. We don't know how the brain produces ideas, and I don't think we ever can. He, he makes very difficult, and I would say high level, not easy to read, but very, very um, kind of world-class arguments to say you can't explain consciousness just through biology and, and uh, the natural. He certainly says moral values. He actually says, he says, because I actually do believe that some things are just wrong, not just practic- impractical, but wrong. He says, I can't believe that just there's nothing else. He, in the end, he, I think he actually leans toward what we call pantheism. And mm, he, he yeah. leans toward the idea that the natural world is not all there is. There is a supernatural. There is something beyond the natural world. 
there's either a, a kind of an impersonal God, you know, like Buddhism would say, or mm-hmm. Hinduism. So he actually, I mean, he just, it he, he just doesn't make sense to him to do the Jewish Christian Muslim personal God. But he clearly just looked and looked and looked and actually, I think it pushes him out. And he's very careful. I mean, he's just basically saying, it, it can't be that there's nothing but matter. They, yeah. you know, he says there can't be that there is only matter that just doesn't fit. And I mean, that's, here's a guy in his seventies, world-class philosopher. I think it's, you may say that's not very much. And of course, I'm a Christian minister. I would like the man to, you know, <laughs> I'd like the man to believe in Jesus. Of course, I want everybody to believe it. But so you might not seem like a lot, but I have a huge admiration for a guy who's willing to uh, rethink the premises when you're one of the top philosophers in the world and you're being looked at and attacked, by the way, by all kinds of other people who say, you're nuts, you're going, you know, you're going religious on us. He says, no, no, not really. I'm just saying there's got to be something there besides matter. So there we are. Uh, I love it. And I, I think that's a, a beautiful place to close. It leaves a lot to be, um, you know, wondered about what, what else could be in this book. There's so much good research, so much good perspective. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to write it, for inviting people into question, for making uh, your church, your community, and um, all those places around you a safe place. Thank you for coming on here. Hopefully you felt safe. Hopefully you enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you. I did. And we, and we, and we know that you have a, a schedule to keep, so we're going to let you go. But um, yeah. God's blessings on you. Okay. And, and thank, you, uh, thank you so, so much for being with us. Well, thanks for your kind words about the book, too. Thanks a lot. Oh, it's wonderful. I enjoyed it immensely. All right. See you later. Thanks, Dr. Keller. Bye. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. This is where my hope lies. This is where my soul sighs. And I will always find my rest in you. So full of Dude, I gotta be honest. That was weird for me. <laughs> uh, as soon as his voice that was came super, on, super weird for me. I was like, because I've, I've, I don't, I don't know how many people out there were 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 our uh, giant uh, Tim Keller fans, but his series on marriage is one of the best things, still to this day, one of the best, uh, almost advice for for marriage. Oh, dude, or yeah, for, like committed couples in any any Just regard. Thinking about it, talking about it, bringing it back to like you know the whole idea of gospel and Jesus and yeah, and all that kind of stuff. Just Really well done. I totally agree. So I remember he- listening to this on the treadmill before I got married, and he's got, like, I always forget what a great speaking voice he has. Oh, great speaking voice. So when we got on, he's like, hello. I'm like, oh, oh, oh great, great voice. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's real, you know. This was just very surreal for me because I felt like, you know, when I when I ended up becoming a pastor and, you know, going through, you know, the little seminary program I went through and, you know, all these kinds of things. I was like, just, I was out of like my early twenties, Mark Driscoll phase, thank God. And I could, I just never could connect with John Piper. I just never, 
just never liked the guy to be honest. He just he just always left me feeling like I wasn't a good enough person every yeah. time I <laughs> listened yeah. to him. Yeah. Sorry, John Piper, if you're, you're not listening to this. No. But if no. you could tweet farewell deconstructionists right now, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As he lights us on fire. Right. right. <laughs> but um, but man, Keller, like his whole approach was just always so winsome and witty, and it reminded me of Lewis. I was just listening to scores and scores and scores of his sermons, so I've heard this guy's voice like a ton. Yeah. So when he got on the phone. When we did this, <laughs> which, by the way, took a while. Yeah. And we're going to now sample the hold music. Yeah. <laughs> so good. We were on hold for like, well, like 10 minutes. At least. We were on hold for like 10 minutes, and they had the most outrageously cliche hold music <laughs> we've ever heard in our lives. And John and I were cracking up laughing. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. So we'll play that now. Yeah. secretary or uh, assistant you know whatever function eighty sir she's she by the way if, if she's listening out there she is the sweetest person she ever so nice so nice and she's like well tim's still talking to somebody and we're like uh we'll wait yeah it's fine we're here <laughs> we'll wait we're not going anywhere we're in adam's basement yeah just sitting here awkwardly just waiting so when his voice finally came on it was very weird yeah very weird <laughs> it was very very strange yeah experience for me because like Deconstruction is a weird journey, and like I don't know how many of the listeners uh, out there have had falling outs with their families, or just a, a fracture that wasn't easy or or gradual or gentle. Um, going back to some of that stuff can be really awkward, and it felt a little awkward for me. I I felt like there was a little like a little boy inside of me wanting to be like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Tim. I'm sorry for deconstructing. I can't stop now. And I don't want to. It's too late. I hope you're not mad at me. <laughs> oh, Uncle Tim's so mad. And so when uh when he totally got what we were doing and in, in, in a lot of yeah. in a lot of ways unexpectedly talked about a lot of the same things that we always talk about. That was uh very interesting for me. I wasn't expecting that at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. It was um I think we said in the intro, I just I, I was very surprised, I think, at like I knew he's always come across like he he just has this this heart for people and yeah like he's just like look can we just like at least talk about it you right. know and uh, I I think that's what's so compelling about not only his writing but his speaking obviously and he has a huge church in in New York City mm -hmm. um but yeah that was it was surprising and I just I it felt comfortable from the get go yeah it was really great some one of the things that I just love that he's always talked about but I'm glad that in this book he focused a little bit more on it is this whole idea of uh, challenging your own doubts. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, we have doubts, but he's like, don't let your doubts actually become these authority figures in your lives that go unchallenged. So you have to learn to almost, if you're going to be skeptical, you have to also learn to a degree to be skeptical about your own skepticism. Yeah. And that's, you know, and then, well, are you going to be skeptical about your skeptical skepticism? Like, you can keep going with that, but I think the point is, just because you've learned something new and you've learned a new way of thinking about things, don't blindly even follow that. Like, right. there's, a, there's an aspect of skepticism. You know, he even said this in, in the interview. There's, you know, if you're not doubting, you're kind of flatlining. Which yeah. is funny because, you know who else says that? Rob Bell. Whoa. So it's like, there's so much parallels between all these people that people want to think are like miles apart. And they're so disparate in their thinking. And it's like, no. 
people that are reasonable and are trying to get away from just ego-centered, dualistic, just, you know, in, out, right, wrong, if people want to just have conversation, it's amazing to me how much we always end up saying a lot of the same things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love, I, I mean, a bunch of the things that he said really, really stuck out to me. Um, but one of the things kind of go along with what you're saying is where he talks about like, yeah, not only is doubt okay, but every once in a while you should have questions and doubts. They should just evolve and change over time. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And it's like, who can't relate to that? Yeah, looking back, if you actually analyze the things that you had questions about, like mine have definitely changed and evolved over time. Hugely. It's like, oh. I, you know, that, that first crack in the like, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, like that first crack in like that, what does it mean that scripture is inerrant? Yeah. The first crack in like the authority of scripture yeah. is like traumatic. You're like, whoa, wait, I've got no ground to stand on. And then, you know, you keep moving and you listen to a lot of people and you realize that, you know, that's not so bad and the world's not, the sky's not falling and, you know, everything's not coming apart. And you move on, and that's not a very important doubt to you anymore. Right. You know? And, you know, then it becomes something else. But the fact that you're always coming up with new things to think about, evaluate, hear new perspectives on, it means you've got a vital connection yeah. with your beliefs or your faith or your community or your tradition or whatever. Anyway, so many good things to talk about in that. I, I hope uh, you all got as much of an earful as we did. Yeah. Mm. really good and what a what a i mean i just want to say a, a thank you to all of you listeners out there new listeners old listeners um mm. we've had just like just like a giant hug giant. from you guys this oh, month and um, we needed it we needed it yeah adam and i on, on a uh slightly personal note of just being run ragged with our full-time jobs aka our fundraising for the podcast fundraising um so it's been, you know, it, uh, as you guys know, we do a lot of this, um, in what little spare time we have between full-time jobs, family, second jobs, third jobs, <laughs> school, you know? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, a lot of times, you know, we're, we're running on, on less than empty, running on fumes. And, uh, and, and sometimes it's like, man, like mm. it, it, you know, it kind of seems daunting to even record like an intro and outro, you know, but, but I don't know if I can tonight, John, <laughs> I know. Literally, when we joke about like who drinks coffee this late at night, you know we do. But uh, it, it it just means the world to us. Um, all the great feedback that we've gotten this month, wow. um, you know, from the Glennon episode, Zach's episode, Brennan, um, you know, and uh, that just drives us and keeps us going. We really appreciate it more than more than we can even tell you guys. So, and we're trying to continue to listen and 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 listen to you guys, but just listen to what we think the spirit of this thing is, and just continue to follow it wherever it goes. You guys are in for a huge treat the entire month of October. I, oh, man. I don't even know how to tell you. Let's talk about it a little bit. Oh, man. We can reveal it now, I think. So it's next week. <laughs> October. This, this, this is funny, but it, October, like, if you, grew up, if you grew up as a fundamentalist Christian, yeah. October was not a month that you looked forward to. No. Because you were, like, for me, I was not allowed to trick-or-treat Right. There got to a point where I really wasn't even supposed to talk about Halloween anymore. We just substituted the word harvest in. <laughs> <laughs> Going to a harvest party. Yeah. These are harvest candies. Trunk or treat. Yeah, trunk or treat, whatever. <laughs> you know, we know I wasn't even allowed to do that, man. No, no, way. no, 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 no. Oh my gosh. So I love you, mom and dad. I know you were trying <laughs> and we laugh about it now. But this whole, you know, October being Halloween and you know, that's Satan. And so like let's talk about Let's talk about ghosts and ghouls and Satan yeah. and hell yes. and demons. And let's talk about all of that 
wacky, wacky stuff. Yeah. The whole month of October. Yes. So welcome to hell with <laughs> Adam and John. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a blast. Yeah, it's we'll, going to be a blast. We'll do a little intro next week, and uh, we'll t- we'll dive into some history, the evolution of of those different topics, and and how they came to be. Um, what we consider the current kind of average. We've got some outlook. new <laughs> new guests coming on. Yeah, uh, stay tuned for some new guests. We've got some old guests returning. I'm really excited about that. Really one. excited about that. Yeah, um, it is just going to be a blast. Um, obviously, a little tongue in cheek, a little you know, we like to be lighthearted about things that are you know infinitely important but yeah at the end of the day there's just a lot of great material a lot of just brilliant people coming on to talk to us about all things dark in spirituality yeah so it's gonna be a lot of fun and then uh the rest of the year um you guys have no idea we have it planned out we have some really cool unique guests coming up in november and then december um we have some other really great guests one of which uh, we've been holding on to for a really long time. Oh, good Lord. I always forget. I don't forget. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, we, we're just really excited to, to finish off the year uh, with you guys. Like, We have some really cool treats in store. So It's going to be amazing. Yeah, hang in there. We love you guys more than we could say. Anybody that's listened once or to all the episodes or anything in between, anybody that's given a word of encouragement or a dollar in donation – we run mm. on the fact that we think that we are doing something that people are connecting with and people need, and we'll keep doing it as oh, long, as, long as we can. Oh, dude, yes. All sons and daughters this week. Yeah. We um, figured a pro- uh, apropos. Yeah. This is very apropos. Let's yeah. just go with a straight-up evangelical, beautiful yeah. um, worship music to crack the echo chamber. <laughs> yeah. Very uh, fol- folksy version, but uh, really good if you like their music. Um, like always, please go out, give them a shout out on social media. Tell them we sent you. Absolutely. Um, they have a, a newish album that just came out. I think it came out this year, I believe. I think we're using a lot of the old stuff on this. Eh, mixed. A little mix. Yeah. Cool. 50-50. So check out their catalog. And as always, uh, uh, if you like the music on, on the show, um, go out by their albums. Let them know that we sent you and uh, follow our playlist on Spotify. Beautiful. We love you guys so much, and for now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. I'm John Williamson.
$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. 